the brilliant book of Acts begins with uh, these words. You'll see it on the screen. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke was a medical doctor turned historian. He first wrote the Gospel of Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in your New Testament. That book is all about what Jesus began to do in his earthly ministry. It's, it's about his time when he was physically on earth. In particular, the three years in which he had a public ministry. But Luke wasn't done with just that first volume. He also wrote a second volume. That's the book of Acts. Acts is about what Jesus continued to do. Friends, although he's not with us in bodily form today, Jesus remains ever active. He is, he's working today through you, through his people, by his Spirit. And he's doing so that his word might triumph around the world. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's a long book, and there's some complicated things in it that are hard to figure out. And yet that is its clear, central message. God is working through you by his Spirit. Beloved, when you share the gospel with someone, when we sit under the word of God together and learn from him, when we hold our possessions loosely, in order that we can give to one another generously, Jesus himself is continuing his redemptive ministry through us as we rely on the Holy Spirit. That's got to be one of the most encouraging truths we could consider. That God, Jesus himself, the very center person in history, is active and at work through people like us. Of all the things that Jesus continued to do, continues to do through his people by his spirit, the most important, of course, is that Jesus still saves. He's rescuing people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That's why a few sentences later in chapter 1, it says this, verse 8, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In many ways, those geographical markers serve as, as concentric circles through which we can read the book of Acts. Because that's exactly what's happened in our study this year, as we've seen the gospel spread outward from where it all began. As the gospel was preached, people came to know Jesus. And churches were planted to help them grow up in Christ. And as that repeated outward again and again and again, Jesus saved more and more and more people. No people group or social class was excluded. All people everywhere who hear the gospel and respond with faith and repentance are welcomed into the family of God. And they're caught up in God's cosmic plan to reach some from every people group. This morning, as we reach the very last chapter of the book of Acts, we're just a mere 30 years past when Jesus said those words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So three short decades 
a lot of us have been around quite a bit more than that. And in just 30 years, that promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, has come true. That would have been almost unimaginable to the first followers who heard Acts 1.8. Certainly, they would never have imagined that in three decades, the gospel would reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. It reaches Rome. That's what we find as we turn to this last chapter. Rome has been called the eternal city, and for good reason. For over a thousand years, it remained the seat of the world's superpower, the Roman Empire. There's really no modern equivalent to a city like that. Certainly not in our half of the world. To reach the eternal city, ready to share the gospel, was an epic moment in the history of the church. It had been one of Paul's great ambitions to make it there, this hub of the world. Because if Rome could be reached, then in the same way the gospel spread out from Jerusalem, it would spread out again from Rome. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, first, we've got to somehow get Paul, who last week we left him essentially bobbing in the sea as the ship had crashed and everyone was shimmy, swimming or shimmying to shore. That ship carrying some 300 passengers crashed and broke apart when they were just looking on the island of Malta. While no one died, it surely felt like for weeks that everyone was going to die. And with that in mind, let's discover what happened next. Acts 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, I think that word safely is amusing, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and was cold. And Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. George Whitfield, the great preacher, once famously said, We are immortal until our work on earth is done. That truth is certainly put on display in Paul's life. Just think about what he's been through in the path to get to Rome. He's been wrongly accused by fellow Jews. He's been uh, held in custody by Rome with no end date. He repeatedly appeared before Jewish and Roman officials. He endured riots. 
He had weeks at sea in a storm that appeared deadly. He was shipwrecked. And now, still gasping for air after swimming to shore, he's been bitten by a snake. This guy can't get a break. I mean, it's like 2020. God promised Paul that he would one day preach the gospel in Rome. And no human authority or no natural disaster and no creature of of nature would ever be able to impede what God had foreordained. Yet, we shouldn't read this passage as though snake bites don't hurt. Even when God promises particular outcomes, He doesn't guarantee what the path from here to there will entail. That's often left up to the mystery of His providence. The same is true for us. We we know, brothers and sisters, where we will ultimately reach. And yet so much of what will become of our lives from here to there, we have no knowledge of at all. And all the praying in the world is not going to bring about a situation where God tells you all the details. He loves you too much for that. If you knew, you wouldn't be able to handle it. Yet we can be confident that what God does promise, God keeps every time. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. Do you see what a great comfort that is? And yet, uh, we shouldn't take Whitfield's word for it. I think there's an even better way. Psalm 139 puts it this way, like this, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Beloved, do you hear the way the psalmist here describes God's tender, personal care? For people. This is a beautiful picture of just how intricately he's been involved in your life from the very moment of conception, which is when life begins. That God's been there, been involved, been working for you. And that before you were ever born, your days were already allotted out. What immense hope and confidence and peace flow from the heart of a believer who's convinced that those words are true. Our lives are not up to chance. God's in charge. And if God is sovereign, and if God is good, and if God's care for us began not at the moment of our conversion, when we were cleansed of sin and made righteous in God's sight, but rather, don't miss this, If God's been caring for you from the very beginning, when you were conceived and born as a sinner, then certainly it will continue 
in your life as a saint. You see, there's nothing then that we will face in this life that God will be somehow insufficient to see us through. Because His love for us is not conditional. It's not based on us. It didn't begin with us. It's based on Him. And it started in the very beginning. These great doctrines of the character of God provide us, brothers and sisters, with a certain buoyancy in life. Like, like a buoy that can't be held down under the surface of the water. Our joy, our joy in the Lord can't ultimately be drowned out. I believe what kept Paul sane as he was wrongly imprisoned for years, only to be put on a ship and nearly die, only to be washed ashore, only to be bitten by a deadly snake. was his absolute confidence in the character and promises of God. Without that, all that's left is some version of fatalism. We see this from the responses of the native people on the island of Malta. Did you notice it as we read? If not, let your eyes glance back over verse 4 and their response. When Paul bundled up a bunch of sticks. He was unknowingly carrying a viper that had gotten stiff from the cold. And when that viper felt the heat as Paul set the sticks into the fire, that viper leaped out and fastened its fangs into his arm. You'll notice in verse 4 what their response was, the, the people who lived on the island, justice has not allowed him to live. If you look closely, you'll see probably in your translation of the Bible that the word justice is capitalized. Justice is capitalized because it's very likely the people did not see this event and justice herself as some ethereal idea or an impersonal force. Now, they likely had a particular Greek goddess in mind, a goddess whose name was justice. To these islanders, if something bad happened to you, then you must be under the punishment of the gods. I wonder, church, how many of us have a sanitized, Christianized version of the same idea? Let me put it like this, in the form of a few questions. Do you find that difficulties cause you to question God's character? Does suffering automatically raise doubts about what you've done wrong? Do you find it harder to go to God in prayer when you haven't prayed in a while because you think that God's going to be cold towards you? In many ways, it's natural to question why when hardship happens. But the answers we come up with must be governed by God's Word, not by our emotions. Because our emotions so often turn out to be liars. Sometimes even well-meaning friends don't offer much real help in those kinds of moments. Think back to the book of Job. So much of the material in Job is Job's friend coming to, quote, help him. When their basic position was no different than these islanders. Bad stuff has happened to you that must mean you've done bad 
You see how those are the same? There's no question that sometimes difficulties do come because we sin. God has hardwired a certain sowing and reaping into the way life works. So for example, in January, one of the sermons we're going to look at from Proverbs is about work. And Proverbs is super clear. If you don't work hard, then you're going to have all kinds of trouble in life. That's a sowing and reaping. It's the way things ought to be. But it's impossible to correlate every shipwreck, every snake bite, every stub's toe, every job loss, every discord with a loved one, every romantic relationship that ends, every car wreck, or every cancer diagnosis with personal sin. You simply cannot equate every form of suffering to a direct connection with a personal sin. Instead, it's far better to have Job's perspective, not Job's friend's perspective, and not the Malten indigenous people's perspective. Job, at the major onset of his first suffering, in Job 1, verse 21, says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's far more comfort in knowing that God is sovereign, even over our suffering, than there would be that we could somehow magically ascribe a connection between I did that thing and therefore this bad thing happened to me. As though you can stop doing all the bad things so that no more bad things will happen to you. That's not Christianity. God isn't God in that system. You are. That's what makes this so catastrophic. Many times, all we know and all we'll need to know is that the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm not sure more information is hardly ever actually beneficial. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, anything else seems like it just makes us fickle fatalists. Fickle like the natives on the island. Within the span of a few minutes, they've gone from, this guy must be a murderer, to, this guy must be a god. Now, it's easy to laugh at that to turn up our noses, to think of them as being some kind of barbaric, uneducated fools. But friend, look in your own heart. Haven't your thoughts about your suffering been no less erratic? We swing wildly in our own responses to suffering and suffering in other people's lives. We, we are no different than them. On this side of heaven, may we trust God's character. May we rest in God's promises. May we be content to not know why, but find far greater delight in Him who allowed this thing to come to pass. This does not answer every question, but it does put us headed in the right direction. And that's really all we can hope for, is to be headed the right direction. Now, Paul wanted to go to Rome, 
And God wanted Paul to go to Rome. If those two things are true, he wanted to go, God wanted him to go, then why was it so tough for Paul to actually get there? Well, there's many possible reasons. But in the end, like the issue of suffering, there's no verse that gives us a definitive answer. And so where the Scriptures are silent, we should resist the urge to help God out with what He forgot. We should be content with what He has said, for it is enough. We can't answer the question, why was it so hard for Him to get there? But what we can answer is a better question. That better question is this. How did Paul handle the circuitous journey to Rome? You hear how that's better? Certainly better for us. Or I could put it a slightly different way even. How did God use Paul's hardship? Now we're getting down to the way we read our Bible. Because we've slowly kind of stripped away us at the center. Now we're down here with God at the center. How did God use Paul's hardship? Are you with me? All right, beloved, God used Paul's long imprisonment and journey to Rome for gospel opportunity. That's what God did. Just think of all the incredible speeches we've covered in the last six weeks. Many people heard the gospel who never would have heard, heard it if Paul hadn't suffered in prison. Let's look at the next paragraph to see another way that God used this suffering in Paul's life. Verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place where land belonged to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick and with fever and dysentery. Just incidentally, I did a little research on what in the world was fever and dysentery. I'll spare you the details. But it turns out there is a well-documented a particular bacteria that people got in this tiny little section of the world at this point in time from a, a bacteria in goat's milk. So the application is, don't drink goat's milk. All right. And Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They were all drinking that goat's milk. Uh, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put us, they put on board whatever we needed. Whether on the sea in a storm or on land after a snake bite, the Lord used Paul's difficulties to continue his work in him and through him. Trials before governors became evangelistic gold mines. Being stuck in a jail cell provided hundreds and hundreds of hours to write Scripture, which we still read today. Did you know many of the books that Paul wrote were written during his imprisonment? So what the devil thought would 
clamped down Paul's witness, actually megaphoned it out. Shipwrecks became opportunities to display peace and courage. And getting stranded on an island meant the betterment of the natives because God's power visited them through God's servants. So here's the principle. We put it for us. Difficulties often result in gospel opportunities. That's what this passage is ultimately about. Difficulties often result in gospel opportunities. Every single time, difficulties bring internal gospel opportunities. Meaning, friends, we grow spiritually through suffering. The, the New Testament could not be any clearer about that. It's all over the place. If you're in a particular season of difficulty, brother or sister, know, know deep down in your bones, God has not left you. And God is not indifferent. And God is still good. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How do you deal with that? How do, you, how do you come to see that God's using this for my good? Well, you may not be able to see it in the moment. You may have to stand on other people's faith reminding you that God is good, that God does love you, that God is using that season of difficulty. One of the best things we can do to prepare for hardship before we're in it is to learn scriptures that will ring in our ears when we are in it. Passages like Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Romans 5, 1 to 5, that explicitly says there are things that happen in us in suffering that don't happen any other way. The growth of character comes through suffering and suffering alone. There are things that happen within us when we suffer, things that produce greater Christ-likeness that only come through the crucible of Christ. And those gospel opportunities bring about internal change. And yet many times, difficulties bring gospel opportunities not only within us in crises, but also opportunities to do good to others. That's what we've seen so clearly in Paul's life these last six, seven weeks as we've been covering his protracted season of hardship. And he serves as a great case study for helping us know how to think and handle suffering in our own lives. Church, remember, as you consider Paul, what he shows us by way of example, is that the goal in life is not to be healthy, wealthy, and at ease. Even if you could somehow attain those three things at a particular moment in time. They wouldn't satisfy because they wouldn't last. I mean, just think about how quickly your life changes with a certain email or text message or phone call. Beloved, the great goal in life is to know Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to be transformed by Jesus, to know deep in your heart that He's there to share Jesus with others, to learn to live like Jesus. Everything's about Him. He is the goal. And when 
we begin to see that happening, then we're driven to see hardships not as vile distractions, but as occasions a sovereign Lord has allowed to help us first know Him more and then share Him with others. Now, think of an example with me outside the Bible. Yes, we see this with Paul, but maybe Luke kind of fudged the details, you might be thinking. Maybe he smoothed over all of Paul's complaining. Maybe he had some editorial editing in, in order to present us only this polished person. Maybe, he, maybe Paul's some kind of super freak. Well, think with me about somebody who has been trapped in a form of suffering that is horrific for years. Joni Erickson Tata. Some of you will be familiar with her story. Joni, when she was 17 years old, drove to Chesapeake Bay to swim with friends on a hot day. And as she enjoyed the day at the bay, she came to a point where that enjoyment end, ended. Joni couldn't drive home that day. In fact, she would never drive again. After a diving accident, left her a quadriplegic. Imagine being 17. You know, this is like the, the peak of your invincibility. Laying in the bottom of the water, looking up, unable to move, wondering if you're going to survive that moment. She lost complete control of her body. Understandably, that set off a period of incredibly deep depression. But by God's grace, she came out of it. Now, I want to read you something she's written. It's kind of long, so you've been warned. But it's here on the screen, and would you follow along with me and think about a modern person who's so helpful to us. Few of us have this luxury. It took me forever to think of it as that. To come to ground zero with God. Before the accident, my questions had always been, how will God fit in this situation? How will he affect my dating life, my career plans, the things I enjoy? All those options were gone. It was me, just a helpless body, and God. I had no other identity but God. And gradually, he became enough. I became overwhelmed with the phenomenon of the personal God who created the universe living in my life. Perhaps he could make me attractive and worthwhile. The first months, even years, I was obsessed with the question of what God was trying to teach me. Secretly, I probably hoped that by figuring out God's ideas, I could learn my lesson and then he'd heal me. You hear that? That's the islander. That's Job's friends. That's garbage. I suppose every Christian with similar experiences goes back to the book of Job for answers. Here was a righteous man who suffered more than I could even imagine. But strangely, I could not find answers to the why of tragedies anywhere in the book of Job. What I found was that Job came to God regardless, and God rewarded him. Is that what God wants, I wonder? My focus changed from 
demanding an explanation from God to humbly depending on Him. Okay, I'm paralyzed. It's terrible. I don't like it. But can God still use me paralyzed? Can I, paralyzed, still worship God and love Him? He began to teach me that I could. Maybe God's gift to me is my dependence on Him. I will never reach the place where I am self-sufficient, where God is crowded out of my life. I am aware of His grace every day when I wake up, flat on my back, waiting for someone to come dress me. I can't even comb my hair or blow my nose alone. I have a hope for the future. The Bible speaks of our bodies being glorified in heaven. In high school, that was always a hazy, foreign concept. But now I realize I will be good. I've not been cheated out of being a complete person. I'm just going through a 40-year delay. And God is with me even through that. Wow. Joni's autobiography, written nine years after her accident, became a bestseller. It's on New York Times bestsellers list. It's sold to date five million copies. And a film about her life in which she shares the gospel has been shown all over the world in evangelistic rallies. Some estimates say that 250,000 people have been saved through her influence. Joni would go on to become a painter. If you've never seen videos of it, look it up on YouTube later today. She can move her mouth, so she holds a paintbrush in her teeth, painting beautiful landscapes. Her Joni and Friends radio program accomplished tremendous good. Good not only for helping those with disabilities, but eternal good. As she used it again and again and again as an opportunity to share the gospel. She became a deeply sought-after speaker, and her life was used by the Lord in ways that simply would not have happened if she had not dove that day. Will every one of us become an Apostle Paul or a Joni Eric Cantata? Of course not. That's not the point I'm trying to make. God determines the scope and fruitfulness of our lives. But the principle at work here is the same principle at work in us. Difficulty results in gospel opportunities. Every single time. There's no exception. I want to encourage you this morning to think about your existing sphere of relationships. So imagine you're not trying to go to some other place, and you're not imagining that somehow you're going to write a biography, autobiography that sells 5 million copies. Just think about your own existing relationships. When you suffer, the people around you know it. You, you might think you're hiding it, but you suck at that. They know. They know. And so think about their knowing as your opportunity to share honestly and transparently how through struggle you're finding God is good and He is enough. Friends, if the, if the sphere never grows beyond that, that's plenty. Look at how much fruit of gospel opportunities could be had in your life if you just seize the moments that are already there. 
Friends, you really can be in situations in which there is turmoil without and peace within. When that happens, gospel opportunities abound. That's what the Lord does with suffering. Now, let's close this out by seeing Paul finally make it to Rome. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the islands, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as figureheads. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rigium. And after one day of south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. I think that is hysterical. <clears throat> we spent like chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter saying we're going to make it to Rome. Parents, that's what you're going to feel when you give your kids a gift on Christmas. Verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns, sounds like a bar, to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Friends, eventually Paul made it to the city of Petuli, which is 140 miles south of Rome. That was the ship's destination, and so therefore all the passengers had to get off. And as Paul made that last leg of the journey on foot, so they would have walked the 140 miles, word of his arrival began to spread outward up to the city. And there was already a group of believers living in Rome. These are the Christians that Paul wrote the book of Romans to. And so these people who had heard about him, who had been fed by him, were excited that he was finally there, even though he's in custody. And so some of them headed down, rushing that 30 miles to Appius, that 40 miles to three taverns to meet him. And notice his reaction or his response or what that did for him. Their, their presence led Paul to thank God. This beast of a man was a tremendous, a tremendous strength he had. He was encouraged by them. Seems to me that's a great way to round out this message. Yes, difficulties result in gospel opportunities. But, yes, difficult times are difficult times. Part of God's grace to Paul was to send believers from the church to strengthen and encourage him on that final few miles of his journey. They brought him greater hope and confidence in God. These Christians who had been blessed by him ministered to him. What a picture. Church, may the Lord Jesus Christ continue His work in you.
through you. May you embrace every opportunity for the gospel to change you within and to change others without. May we encourage each other along the way. We will need it. Nobody, not even the Apostle Paul, was without need of the encouragement of fellow brothers and sisters. And if you don't yet know this gospel I've been talking about today, then understand that the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection could literally transform your life, bringing you into a personal relationship with the God who made you, welcoming you into a family of believers who will go that 30 or 40 miles to meet you, to encourage you, to greet you, to strengthen you, to give you a, a cause to praise God. Stick around on the patio after the gathering ends in just a few minutes. We'd love to tell you more about this gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take what we've heard today and you would cause it to be inescapable. That Paul's own journey would help us think about ours and each other's. That our disposition toward hardship would change. And that our investment in others and first among fellow believers and then second outward from there, that we would begin to see the hardships and sufferings and crises that come as unique opportunities for the gospel to be advanced. Advanced in our own lives, making us more Christ-like. Like Joni talked about being less dependent on herself and utterly dependent on God. God, certainly our preference would be that it doesn't take becoming a quadriplegic to get that. And yet, if that's what it takes, bring it on. For there is nothing better than living in a constant state of dependence on the one who will never fail us. Lord, as we head into this Christmas season in which most everybody you would talk to right now would say, this has been a hard year. May you use us to transparently share what a great God you are.